Hello and welcome to episode 343 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thanks for joining me today for our story which begins in the southeast of England and brings home again just how much one act of extreme violence, which takes just a few seconds, affects so many people for generations. Okay, so no adverts today. I know, I know. I will try and get some soon. I must be the only person out there who gets fewer offers of work than Philip Schofield. Don't they know I have the freedom of Rochdale? Ah, let's move on and set some context with our never copied Guess the Month and Year game. I think it's fair to say the number one song in the UK isn't on any of my playlists. It was Against All Odds from Mariah Carey featuring Westlife. In the US top spot was Madonna with Music and in Australia at number one was Most Girls from Pink. In the news this month, mass demonstrations in Belgrade culminated in the resignation of Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic, often called the Bulldozer Revolution. The last match at the Old Wembley saw England's football team, men's football team that is, lose 1-0 to Germany. The South African Cricket Board issued former captain Hansi Cronier with a life ban as a result of match-fixing allegations. And Donald Dewar, the First Minister of Scotland, was taken to hospital following a fall outside Butte House, his official Edinburgh residence. But his health rapidly deteriorated and he died the following day, aged just 63. And finally, this month saw the Hatfield Rail crash, when an express train was derailed, killing four people and injuring so many others in Hatfield, Hertfordshire. So did you guess the month and year? It was October 2005. Swanley is a small town in Kent, about 15 miles southeast of central London, just inside the M25. Legendary Kent wicketkeeper Alan Knott grew up here, one for the kids, as did Chelsea footballer Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Being so close to the M25 gives easy access to major routes and our story today starts at the M25 Swanley Interchange. It was Sunday, May the 19th, 1996, just after 1pm, when 52-year-old career criminal Kenneth Noy was annoyed that a small red van cut into the lane ahead of his Land Rover discovery. Noy had a track record of violence, including stabbing police officer John Fordham to death in 1985. Noy at the time of the stabbing was suspected of melting down and recycling the gold stolen in the Brinks Map bullion robbery in 1983 and John was one of the detectives watching his house and grounds. Noy faced trial for John's death but he was acquitted of murder with the jury believing his claim that he slashed out in self-defence when the officer attacked him. The red van that pulled in front of Noy was driven by Danielle Cable who'd passed her driving test just seven months previously. She was 17. When the vehicles came to a halt, Noy got out and confronted Danielle's 21-year-old fiancé, Stephen Cameron, who was in the car with Danielle. Both Stephen and Noy got out of their cars and got into a fight over this minor traffic incident. Witnesses suggested that Stephen was getting the better of Noy when the older man pulled out a nine-inch knife and stabbed Stephen twice once in the heart and once in the liver, before calmly walking back to his car and driving off. Danielle later described what happened next, saying how Stephen stumbled towards her with blood seeping from his two wounds. 
I saw Steve Clutch's chest. He said, he stabbed me, Dan. Take his number plate. I saw blood on his chest. It was dreadful. I was screaming and crying for someone to help me. Then Stephen collapsed on the floor. Tragically, Stephen Cameron didn't survive this attack and lost his life on the spring Sunday afternoon on the slip road of the M25 at just 21 years old. A shocking murder. And rather than face accountability for his actions, Noy made several calls from his mobile to associates and his wife Brenda to make arrangements for him to escape the UK. The next day he flew by helicopter to Cannes in northern France and then travelled by private jet to Madrid before going further south in Spain. The Land Rover was destroyed and the murder weapon never found and it wasn't until two years later in 1998 that Noy was identified in southern Spain following a tip-off where he was known locally as Michael Main or Mickey the Builder. Danielle bravely agreed to be flown out to identify the man who had killed her fiancé and who was brought back for trial. At the trial, witness Alan de Cabral, much more than later, said he saw Noy smile as he sped from the scene. De Cabral added that Noy then walked past him and nodded as if to say that sorted him. Driving his own Rolls Royce, the Cabral told how he followed Noy to try to note down his registration number, but he lost him. Giving evidence, Noy said that he'd stabbed Stephen Cameron in self-defence after he alleged that Stephen had flown at him in a wild range during a simple misunderstanding. When the jury returned with a verdict, they found Noy guilty of murder by a majority of 11 to 1. With this decision, the eight women and four men of the jury showed that they didn't believe Noy's argument that he'd stabbed the 21-year-old electrician in self-defence. Noy was sent to prison for life and released in 2019 after serving 21 years for Stephen's murder. Noy is now seemingly enjoying the publicity since his release. There has been a book and he featured in the recent TV programme The Gold about the Brinks Matt robbery where he was played by a charismatic actor. Quite why this casting happens is beyond me. Like when Zac Efron, if you recall, generally played Ted Bundy. Let's remind ourselves of Noy's real character. A good example of which is when he was sentenced to 14 years in prison for his role in handling some of the stolen gold and money from the Brinks Matt robbery. On learning his fate, he told the juries he hoped they would, I quote, die of cancer. And Noy's actions have left many lives ruined. Let's look at some of these people. Obviously, Stephen was murdered by Noy at just 21. His girlfriend, Danielle, who had to watch her fiancé die. Her life was thought to be at such serious risk from Noy that she was put into witness protection, where she has stayed her entire life since that day, living a new life of a new identity, effectively leaving her old life behind and only able to see her family twice a year. And Stephen's parents. They never forgave Noy for showing no remorse and for blaming Stephen for the incident which led to his death. When Noy was seen at the spot where he stabbed Stephen in 2020, Stephen's dad Ken said, It's like Noy's walking on Stephen's grave. I feel sickened that he's gone back to the place where we took my son's life. It's clear he hasn't got an ounce of remorse for what he did. Tragically, Stephen's mum Tony died in 2016 
She caught her arm on a bush in the garden and contracted a superbug. And Tony's ashes were interred with Stephen's, Ken said. They were so close in life that it seemed right to put them together in death. When he suffered a heart attack in 2017, Ken said he was upset that he'd survived. But last year, following all this trauma and then finally the death of his dog, Ken could face life no longer and he took a fatal overdose. In his will he wrote, I wish to be cremated and my ashes interred with those of my late wife and late son at St Mary's Church in Swanley, Kent. But today our focus is on another man involved in Stephen's murder. One of the witnesses at the trial, 40-year-old father of three, Alan de Cabral. His witness testimony at the Old Bailey was vital in convicting Noy. He told how he'd seen the two men fighting on the slip road of the motorway and had seen Noy lunging forward with a knife and stabbing Stephen. He was also the person who called 999 at the scene. Afterwards, Alan spoke openly about the danger he knew that he was potentially putting himself and his family through by giving evidence against a dangerous and well-connected criminal like Noy. He told the media how he'd received death threats and lived in constant fear, even claiming that three bullets had been pushed through the letterbox of his home just before he gave evidence. Speaking to the Telegraph newspaper, he said, giving evidence against Kenneth Noy had a devastating effect on my life. I split from my wife because of the stress and I had to shut down my motorbike business because I have received death threats. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder because I could be a target. And just months after Noy had been sent to prison for murdering Stephen Cameron, Alan was shot dead. Alan was a big guy. He was 27 stone with long grey hair. He'd been sitting in the front passenger seat of his son's car in a retail park in Ashford in Kent at 1.37pm on Thursday, October the 5th, 2000, when he was shot in the side of the head by a gunman, just one bullet. Witnesses told how they heard Alan begging for his life in the black Peugeot 205 just before the shot. With that, a youngish man, maybe in his 20s, wearing a woolly hat, was seen to run away. Alan was said to have died instantly. His son at the time had been in a Halford store and he came out to find his dad bleeding from his head wound. As of today, June 2023, nobody has been convicted for the murder of Alan. So let's take a closer look at just what may have happened to him. To detectives, this murder looked like a professional hit carried out in front of hundreds of potential witnesses. Was it related to the evidence Alan gave at the trial of Noy? Detectives started to look a little more into Alan's life and he was, as the saying goes, a colourful character. He'd met his wife Anne-Marie in a West London pub in 1983. At the time he owned a car sales business in Acton. He was handsome and charming, he drove Cadillacs and always had money to spend. He would always pay cash for trips for the couple on the QE2 Orient Express and Concorde. The couple were engaged in 1986 and soon afterwards their son was born. But it was around this time when Alan's behaviour changed and he started becoming possessive and also physically abusing Anne-Marie. Despite the abuse, the couple married in 1995 
And it wasn't long after this that Anne-Marie noticed for the first time Alan's increasing drug use, especially cocaine. And shortly afterwards, Alan was dealing in these drugs too. And as Kent detectives looked more into the background of Alan, they found more evidence of his connections with criminals, which may have led to somebody wanting to kill him. It seemed that he was actually a pretty high-ranking underworld fixer, who criminals came to when they needed something. It could be money laundering, drugs or even guns. After his death, detectives discovered he had 56 guns in his house, including machine guns and automatic pistols. The summer before he was murdered, Alan had pleaded guilty to possessing a prohibited weapon and cocaine. However, Alan at the time of his death was dealing in vintage guns, so it is thought that this could be the reason for this find. Anne-Marie said that when he was a younger man, he always used cash, and that seemed to be the way for the whole of his life. His home in Kent was bought without a mortgage, and there were a number of expensive cars, including a Jaguar and a Rolls-Royce, that he owned outright. And when just months before he was killed, his house had been raided by police again, over £100,000 had been found in £50 notes. And it was widely reported in the press that HM Revenue and Customs confirmed that Alan ran a team of bootleggers bringing back illicit tobacco and alcohol to the UK from the continent. After his death, Alan's wife spoke to the Mirror newspaper, saying that Alan had lied in court at Noy's trial and had exaggerated his story in an attempt to get police to stop a drugs and firearms investigation that he was involved in. She also rubbished the story he told in court when he said that after he witnessed the stabbing, he drove after Noy so he could take his registration number. Anne-Marie said, that was rubbish. He was driving away from the scene because he didn't want to be stopped by the police. Alan had been on his way to Lewis in Sussex to drop off a consignment of cocaine. He told me that he used the car chase as an excuse because he feared being arrested. Anne-Marie had felt so strongly after the trial that Alan had lied that she even wrote to Noy in Whitemore Prison. A couple of weeks afterwards, she was called by Noy's son and they agreed to meet outside McDonald's in Eltham, south-east London. Anne-Marie said, I was so nervous that Kevin said he could tell it was me from 20 yards away. We sat in his car and he asked me what information I had and why I wrote to his dad. I told him that Alan had lied under oath and he asked me, could I prove this? I said that I could. She also told Kevin how frightened she was of his father. He said, why would my father want to harm you? This information about Alan lying in court and his underworld connections were of course of great interest to Noy's legal team as they prepared for an upcoming appeal against his murder conviction. This information was going to be used to discredit one of the key witnesses, Alan. Now, why would Noy have wanted to see Alan killed when keeping him alive could potentially lead to his conviction being overturned? It makes no sense. Although it was the first response for many and maybe even the police, it made no sense for Noy to not have Alan alive. So if not a hit ordered by someone associated with Noy, had Alan been killed by one of these underworld figures? The fact that Alan was involved in some shady businesses maybe explains why he chose to turn down the offer of police protection 
as this would have stopped him working and earning money. And for a man who just eight weeks before his death told a newspaper that he spent all his time looking over his shoulder, he didn't seem to be taking any precautions at all. He was using his own name and going about his daily business. And a unit as large as he was made him immediately noticeable. He was very well known locally. And he'd also achieved a kind of notoriety in his part of Kent, which grew even further when he was banned from his local pub after a scrap with another customer. A couple of weeks after his murder, a police source was quoted as saying, The more we delve into his past, the more complicated it gets. We raided his home in July. We don't normally carry out that scale of operation without having very good reasons, although we fail to find anything in Mr. de Cabral's case. But he led a very tangled life both in his private and business affairs, which could have created enemies he wanted him out of the way. It would be wrong to just focus on a possible Noy connection in relation to his death. But maybe it wasn't his underworld connections, or the evidence he gave to Noy's trial that led to him being murdered. His first love in his life had always been motorbikes, and Alan had been a hardcore member of the Hells Angel Motorcycle Club. Members of motorcycle clubs claim they are not involved in any criminal activities. They are just clubs where enthusiasts meet. Who knows? Maybe that's the case. But the FBI and other law enforcement agencies don't agree with this and believe that some members of motorbike clubs are involved in crimes including international drug trafficking, violence and sex trafficking. It was reported that Alan de Cabral was heavily involved in biker crime. One reason for his murder was suggested that he might have been involved in selling guns and drugs to other biker gangs, and that maybe some of these were substandard and that's why he was killed. Are you convinced by this theory? There is one other incident that offers some more support for it. Just weeks before Alan's death, in Canada, a real hotbed for biker gang violence at the time, Michael Auger, one of Canada's top investigative journalists, was just getting out of his car at his office when a hitman in a balaclava shot him five times from behind at close range. Michael survived the attack and he went on to live for another 20 years, but he firmly believed that this attack was due to the investigative work he was carrying out around biker gangs battling for control of the large drugs trade. At the time, the Canadian Hells Angels were linked to a number of murders. Just in Quebec, more than 150 bikers had been killed in the previous six years. And there was no doubt about just how into drug trafficking the Canadian Hells Angels were at this time, with a recent raid finding more than £6 million worth of cocaine. And remember, this was almost 25 years ago. And on the morning he was shot, Michael had just published a major expose of biker gangs. A theory emerged that a member of a British biker gang may have crossed the Canadians over a drug deal. Was that man Alan? And did he pay the ultimate price? Does it sound plausible to you? It's hard for us to know, of course, as all information for this sort of activity is usually well protected and only leaked by sources but I don't think it can be ruled out. There is another explanation for his death that has been put forward, which is much more straightforward. 
It was said that Alan liked to date a number of women at any one time. He has even been described as something of an unlikely playboy. Had he been having an affair with someone he shouldn't have been seeing? It has been suggested that he might have been seeing the girlfriend of another high-profile leader of a biker gang, which absolutely could have been enough of a reason to see him killed. The most likely explanation to me from all that I've read is that it seems that Alan had known all along exactly who was threatening his life due to his criminal activities, and that wasn't associates of Kenneth Noy. Going to the police or taking up the offer of police protection just wouldn't have worked for him after giving evidence at Noy's trial, but it would just have escalated the situation. So instead he took the risk of speaking to the newspapers. Had he in fact made up the story about having had three bullets put through his letterbox so that the publicity this brought was, he hoped, enough to stop whoever was threatening him from seeing through with their threats. After all, following his death, the police said they spoke to friends and family members about this, but none of them recalled the incident with the three bullets being mentioned. So that's where we are today. Still no one has been found guilty of Alan's murder. What do you make of what we've heard today? Like me, I know that you are shocked at what happened to Stephen Cameron on that Sunday lunchtime by the M25 back in May 1996. And you admire the bravery of his fiancée Danielle to walk away from her life to ensure the man who murdered Stephen faced justice. And of course all Danielle's friends and family whose lives also changed beyond recognition on that day. And Stephen's parents who never recovered from their loss. But was Alan another victim of Stephen's murder? It can be hard, I get that, to have sympathy for Alan who clearly lived a life that put him in contact with some unsavoury characters. And sometimes when that's the case, the reaction can be that if you live by the sword, then you die by the sword. But Alan was also a father and a friend to many who were devastated by his death. They still are. No doubt his son will never forget the day he saw his dad immediately following the shooting. But the question still remains, who killed Alan? And will we ever know for sure? Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspects of UK True Crime, please just head to Facebook and join over 90,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. So many things, it's never dull. And to support the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcaster, please do head to patreon.com for bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Laura, Carstensen and Susan. Thank you so much. Your support is so appreciated. Just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Please look out for my latest Bloodhound Gin video tomorrow, where I share stories about the smuggling of alcohol in the Scottish Highlands in the 18th and 19th centuries. One of them was known as the King of Noidart. So famous was he for evading the authorities. Thankfully, it's completely safe to visit today and it's such a beautiful place. So come up. And if you are heading this way, try to pop into Percy Distillery on your way through. All the links for anyone who would like to try Bloodhound Gin are in the show notes. 
And you can follow the story on Instagram at UK True Crime and all my other social channels. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. And remember, despite the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.